most of us have likely um, consumed a lot more streaming services during uh, the pandemic. I know that I have. Uh, one that was uh, a surprising binge for me was The Last Dance. It's a 2020 documentary on basically uh, the Chicago Bulls dominance uh, in the 1990s, but it's also kind of um, somewhat of a biopic about Michael Jordan. And uh, I don't even like basketball all that much. Sorry, Pete. Uh, and I wasn't a fan. I'm not a fan of the Bulls. But this documentary was absolutely mesmerizing. It's 10 episodes, and I would watch uh, two, two and a half at a time. Uh, if you were a sentient being in the 1990s, uh, Jordan and the Bulls were everywhere. Michael Jordan was a global celebrity, even in countries that don't play basketball. And in 1992, Gatorade capitalized on his fame and released a very memorable commercial uh, with the tagline, I want to be like Mike. And if you were um, uh, an adult or a adolescent or teenager during that time, you can probably sing uh, that tune. Well, it showed Michael Jordan at the height of his career goofing around on a basketball court with fellow players and kids that were trying to make shots like Mike. And it was a very catchy tune, but it was effective because at that point, literally millions upon millions of people wanted to be like him. Well, what's Mike doing now? He's 57 and his current net worth is north of $2 billion dollars. He owns a private jet painted like an Air Jordan shoe. He's uh, the owner and chairman of an NBA franchise as well as a NASCAR team. He employs dozens of employees and contractors uh, in his own personal company to basically take care of his property and his schedule and to travel with him and so forth. It's a very large inner circle of family and friends that benefit from his largesse. But just in case anyone might forget who's in charge, they only have to recall Michael's code name that is given to each of the principals in the family by their private security team. Michael's code name, like you might refer to the president as POTUS, Michael's code name is Yahweh. Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. It's not exactly the sort of nickname that fosters humility or meekness. But behind all of that money and fame and hubris, there's just a man. A man with anxieties and pain and anguish from loss, concerns about his legacy, and attempts to find real meaning off of the basketball court. His self-esteem has always been, as he says in a, a long ESPN the Magazine article from a few years ago, his self-esteem has been tied directly to the game. It's been established and maintained on the basketball court, and without it, he feels adrift, asking questions such as, Who am I? And what am I doing? And what am I becoming? 
And for the past 10 years, the writer says, since retiring for the third time, he has been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions and distance. It's a bit difficult to feel too sorry for him, not only because he can come off in interviews as more than a little bit self-absorbed, but also because despite so many testimonies to the contrary, it's hard to imagine people living in ultimate luxury, inordinately successful and respected, also being unhappy and unsettled. Well, Jesus is preaching here about the good news, about blessedness that comes from the opposite end of the spectrum than the usual suspects of success and wealth and fame and aspiring to be the very best in our career, in our parenting, even in our hobbies. But instead, it's found in humility, in poverty of spirit, in mourning, in making peace, and being innately spiritually bankrupt. It's these kinds of people who in Jesus's parlance are holy. And in their holiness, they have an insight into the way things really are and the way things will be. Now, a couple of notes on context, because we're looking at a few verses that are embedded, as I'm sure you know, into a much longer sermon. And so maybe it's best to set the stage by telling you what the Sermon of the Mount is not, and therefore what the Beatitudes are not. They're not an indication. They're not, the Sermon on the Mount is not a sermon on how to behave properly. Now, of course, there are behavioral implications, but the blessings that Jesus is talking about don't come by trying real hard to live in this way. He is instead bringing good news to people who already possess these qualities, or at least are open to possessing them. Secondly, Jesus is not analyzing the world as it is, but he's making instead a prophetic announcement. Because obviously, if we read these comments that Jessica read for us, in our present day and age, the meek don't seem to inherit the earth. And we all know, even in our own lives, that mourners often go uncomforted. And the poor in spirit are more often than not overlooked. But it is the meek, the mourners, the poor, who can see something about the world and the future and Jesus' role in bringing that future into the present that others simply cannot see. And thirdly, Jesus is talking, while talking about the world as it is and the earth, he's also talking about the life of heaven, the kingdom as it were, where God already reigns as king. And he's talking about the life of heaven becoming the life of the world, where the kingdom moves into the world and transforms the present earth as a place of beauty and life and harmony and delight, the life that God intended. 
And he is commenting that that sort of kingdom takes shape as people possess these qualities. And he's summoning his community to recognize that he is the beginning of this promised future. The promised future that his listeners have all been waiting for. He's an intrusion of the future, a down payment on how things will be and how things take shape as people possess and live out these internal qualities of heart. The kingdom of God is being announced in this sermon and in these beatitudes, and he is inviting people to live into it now. Now, these four beatitudes, as I said earlier, are not the behavioral qualifications of those who will inherit this future reality. In fact, they're not about possessing anything at all. What makes all these people unique, what makes them holy, in fact, is not a possession of something, but it is a condition of lack. To be poor in spirit, for example, is to be lacking in resources. It is to be lacking in power, lacking in agency. It is to recognize that there are problems in the world and in their world, that is the poor in spirit, to recognize that there are problems in their world and life that they're fully powerless to adequately address. Problems that are beyond the merely psychological, social, emotional, or physical, but a deeper, transcendent lack of poverty of spirit. And these people, those who know that they are poor in spirit, they're able to say with conviction that my deepest problems are beyond my power to fully conquer, that I'm unable to save myself from what ails, ails me. I need spiritual rescue. These are those courageous souls who listen to their self-doubt, who own up privately and publicly to their own limitations, who acknowledge their own finite humanity and say in light of all of that, I need help. And this is so difficult because these are the very sorts of conclusions that we spend so much time and effort avoiding and hoping that other people don't see about us. Jesus says, blessed also are those who mourn. And it could be those who grieve over their personal sin or those who are in some sort of general mourning because of a circumstantial loss. And I think it includes both of those, but perhaps closer to Jesus' point, he's talking here about those who are saddened by the overall brokenness of the world and the mess that humanity, including ourselves, has made of it. You see, the mourner, similar to the poor in spirit, is someone who lacks something that we typically see as critical to our happiness. In this case, comfort. In this case, 
lacking the ability to gain consolation from the world as it is. These people are forced by their condition of life to look outside of themselves, as well as their immediate circumstances to find real and lasting joy. And therefore they're able to see the solution when it arrives. They're able to recognize and hear the solution as he is speaking. There's also the meek that Jesus recognized. Now these could have come in any order, but I like that meekness comes third. Because once you see that all your problems are beyond your abilities to solve, you could just give in to despair and denialism. Or you could get angry and frustrated and therefore eventually immobilized. And many of us do, if not for our entire lives, for moments or seasons. Or we could also, in meekness, approach God and say, God, I need your help. I need your solution. I need your provision. I need your joy to interpenetrate my despair and to transform it into hope. And then choose meekly to wait upon his answer, to wait upon that provision. And this waiting is implied in the fourth thing that I want to mention that Jesus talks about, and that is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And this is really getting into the, the heart of the gospel, the focus of the Bible in many ways. And also I would say it is getting to that unalterable law of the universe that says that those for whom it is their life's ambition to seek hunger and thirst after personal happiness and fulfillment never get it. Ask Michael Jordan at 57. You see, every time we identify something that must be acquired for us to be happy, whether it's an achievement, an experience, or a possession, we'll find it's always around the next corner, effectively ensuring a perpetual unhappiness in the present. This is the unalterable law of happiness, that the more that you try and seek it, the more that you try and corral it, the more that you identify certain possessions or achievements with its end, then the farther it seems away and the more that it slips through our fingers. But what I think Jesus is saying here is that there is a quest, there is a journey to possess that in its essential coherence with the truth of the universe, that because it coheres with the essential meaning of life and because it's relational in nature, that we can always be seeking more and yet be deeply fulfilled at the same time. This is very different than any other type of quest. If we set our happiness 
on a particular thing or achievement or a possession. These things will forever be around the corner. But those who've despaired of their own righteousness and therefore seek a relational grace from God, these people, they are primed to receive the open secret of the world. That is the life and the love of God that has intruded upon the world in the person of Jesus. And this, my friends, is the subtle art of holiness. It's certainly the topic of much of the Sermon on the Mount and of these Beatitudes in particular. I love the quote by Parker Palmer who says in reflection upon this, that holiness means embracing brokenness as an integral part of life. Holiness isn't some behavioral quality that we pursue, but holiness is instead embracing brokenness as an integral part of life. What would Jesus' Jesus's hearers have been expecting? Most of them Jewish. Here's a Jewish rabbi talking about the kingdom of God. Wouldn't they have been likely expecting him to give ethical direction, a call to a, a moral life, a set of do's and don'ts that would differentiate their tribe from the world outside, a recipe for a spiritual pursuit and performance that leads to that ethical purity? But what does he not say here? He doesn't say blessed are the dedicated and the really disciplined people, but the poor in spirit. People who are poor in all kinds of ways have a lack that allows them to see something about their own reality and the reality of the world that others can't. What they see, what they discover are the limits of the self and the limits of the resources of this world. In this ESPN magazine profile, Michael Jordan is sitting behind his desk as his cell phone buzzes over and over with essential news, essential business and NBA trade offers. And in a moment of astute clarity, he asks, how can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me? How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? Well, maybe first by not seeking to be Yahweh. And I'm not talking pejoratively about his code name by a security staff. Maybe it's a joke. Who knows? Maybe they gave it to him. But I think it's essential for all of us in pursuing wholeness, in pursuing holiness, to first of all start with the conviction that we are not Yahweh. We are not God. But instead, by giving him, giving ourselves over to his gracious care and his gift, gift of peace, by not striving to attain holiness, but instead by falling into it, by relaxing ourselves into God's gracious care. Friends, that is the subtle art 
of holiness. Yahweh, God, came in the person of Jesus saying, come to me, all of you who are poor in spirit, and I will make you blessed. It's the call to come out of hiding that began the very first pages of the scripture. That God isn't looking to recruit the spiritually elite, but the spiritually broken and the spiritually impoverished. And so the question for us as we conclude is, will you come out of hiding? Will you give up that rapid pursuit of possessions, of achievements, of success, even spiritually named? Or will you continue to hide behind the fig leaves of perfection and performance and pride? Will you come out of hiding and thus find holiness? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would anoint us with holiness and therefore grant us wholeness. I pray that we would see our spiritual life less as a pursuit of experience, a pursuit of a new discipline, a pursuit of a new technique, even a pursuit of new knowledge or new insight, but a pursuit of you, a pursuit of a relationship, knowing that it is us pursuing you because you first pursued us. Let us understand this and experience this in our personal lives as well as in our life as a church. And we pray that you would carry us into this new week with hope. In Jesus' name, amen.